Hello, and welcome to No Time for Caution, a podcast about Interstellar. I'm your host, Andy. I am the curator of QuantifiableConnection.com. I'm an interstellar addict, a Matthew McConaughey convert, and assuming I dip into my 403B and pay a 40% penalty, potentially a future Lincoln owner. Thank you so much for lending me your ear as we discuss all things interstellar. This podcast is a recurring feature of QuantifiableConnection.com, which itself is the quantification of my love for this film. Each episode, we discuss a new interstellar topic with unflinching sincerity and a heavy dose of humor. I am incredibly pleased to welcome to the show this week my cousin Eric. Eric is a librarian in Brooklyn, New York. He is the assistant general manager of the New York Knickerbockers. He has a steady girl and another 10 on the side. But most of all, he is an all-around great guy. Eric, thank you so much for joining me, sir. Yeah, thank you for having me, Andy. We are recording here in beautiful North Carolina, where we've been uh, uh, spending the weekend together. Uh, How do you feel like it's been going? I think it's been going. Yeah, Uh, we were (laughs) at uh, the Olive Garden yesterday. Uh, how did you how did you feel about that experience? Well, as you know, I took a tour of Italy. <laughs> you did, and they really hit all of the high spots. Yeah, they did. Um, the uh, portobello ravioli, which I finished with, which is my third course, mm-hmm. was the one where I. Do they bring it on different plates? It's one tour, one package, <laughs> right on a plate with a map of Italy. But you could spend it. three summers there. If you want it. Well, with the never-ending possible, yes. Yeah. Theoretically, you never have to leave the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I briefly share a little something that happened? Oh, please do. So uh, there was a very lovely young woman uh, waitressing. Uh, really attended to our needs. I felt like she cared whether my Coke was full. And, uh, that's not, kind that's, of ideal. Yeah, it is. But then something happened. So my brother was wearing a shirt. It was a picture of Samuel Clemens. And it said, uh, uh, that's what she said, uh, because that's, you know, just incredibly clever, and that's how my brother rolls. (laughs) So this waitress comes over, and she says, oh, is that Mark Twain? He says, yeah. uh, Well, I just love history, but, you know, sometimes it gets me into trouble. We're like, what do you mean? She's like, well, in Asheville, we got this statue, and it's like um, Robert E. Lee and Ulysses Grant, and it's a mix of the North and the South. But then these people are like, oh, I see a Confederate flag on there, and I want to take it down. And I'm like, no, that's part of our history. History is forever. What do you say to a woman <laughs> in a situation like that? Do you engage her? Um, well, it's you know, pretty much what I say to any woman. Which is basically just, you know, let's let's just go back. Let's go to my place. <laughs> let's talk about it, you know, over a glass of uh, Mad Dog 2020. <laughs> well, so as far as you're concerned, really just any piece of information you get is helping your, your cause. Right. It's all, it's all feedback into the eventual. You don't care what it reveals about her. No, I don't consider it my responsibility, you know, what her belief systems are. Yeah. Speaking of of belief systems, by the way, uh, how are things going with the New York Knicks uh, free agency this summer? 
I mean, they're it's going it's going great. I'm not a fan of winning games or in the immediate future. I'm really a long long term <laughs> fan. I preferably after I'm not able to follow the game anymore. <laughs> wow, too senile to actually understand what's going on. That's quite a long game. Yeah, or when I think we're building very well for a team when the baskets have been raised to 15 feet when everyone on the planet is seven feet tall. So, so you drafted Porzingis with the thought that in 2029 the rim will be raised. He'll still be about 34, and he'll have a little juice left in the tank. Right to be the future point guard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not sure you understand basketball, but having watched the New York Knicks a lot this past season, that does not surprise me. But this is a podcast about the film Interstellar, so I'm going to transition out of Phase One and get on with the show. Now, uh, Eric, we've had a lovely weekend with the family here. There was an Olive Garden. Uh, there was a, a Fuddruckers trip for half the family. We met a health care worker. It's really just been a blast all the way around. But we capped it off today. I'm hopping on a plane in about six hours. But we capped it off today with a viewing of the film Interstellar. This was the first time you've seen it, correct? Yeah, I just want to correct you there, though. I, we watched the movie Armageddon. <laughs> We did, but it's very similar thematically. I think there's that bit where Bruce Willis is talking to his daughter on the TV. <laughs> it's very similar to when Cooper is getting the messages from home. Uh, Liv Tyler gives a gangbusters performance a lot like <laughs> Jessica Chastain. And uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are interchangeable. <laughs> so. You and your men are the biggest mistake in the history of NASA. <laughs> That is that is how both scripts start. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it didn't make it to shooting on Interstellar, but I think it was a stronger beginning. Yeah. So, how long have you had this Armageddon podcast? Well, I started this Armageddon podcast in 1998. Uh, I saw the movie on Betamax (laughs) um, back at Blockbuster Video. Yeah, if you remember those. (laughs) But yeah, no. So, so we watched Matthew McConaughey. Uh, Jessica Chastain, Anne Hathaway, and Christopher uh, Nolan's brilliant interstellar film. This was the first time you saw it. We're recording this podcast probably about an hour after we watched it. Uh, but what were your thoughts? How did you, did you, first of all, did you enjoy the film? I did enjoy the film. It was difficult for me at points to hide my emotional uh, experience of it. Yeah, no, that's... It's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to be vulnerable in front of a child who's on a tablet, right. which is our uh, your cousin, my niece. And she's very mean. Oh, yeah. She's she's very cruel. And so, yeah, I constantly was just grabbing that Visine bottle so that <laughs> yeah. I had a comeback. I know. And I, she... I really appreciated that so that in, if I actually did start crying, you, <laughs> yeah. you'd be able to say, no, it's just the air quality is poor. <laughs> <laughs> did you have a, kind of a genuinely emotional response yeah Yeah, there was a point where i like yelled out and screamed all right that was that was really sweet i don't know if you remember that i don't what was uh, do you remember what that uh moment was oh yeah i think it was when uh murph murphy old as an old lady Mm. was setting up her dad should have to watch their own child die. 
kids here for me now. You go. Where? Brand. The moment that, well, there are several moments that get me, but the one that gets me in the last scene is, uh, when he asks, when she says, I knew you were coming back, no one believed me, and he says, how do you know? And she said, uh, because my dad promised. Yeah. Well, I guess as someone whose dad's promised him a lot of <laughs> But different, yeah. different strokes. With, di- with different levels of success. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm still waiting for those Reebok pumps. <laughs> yeah. I forgot. Well, the Back to the Future ones in particular. With the, yeah. Those are so sweet. I think it's really irresponsible to watch a movie set 30 years in the future and promise your eight-year-old son that you'll get him <laughs> yeah. the uh, technology. If I don't get him for you, the government will eventually. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, hoverboards for everyone. Um, yeah, that moment, and certainly for me, and I, I think I talked about this on another episode, but the moment that really got me was when he uh, sends Stay in Morse code and he's pounding on the bookshelf, screaming at himself. Make him stay, Merv. Don't let me leave, Merv. Don't let me leave, Merv. Matthew McConaughey is very uh, understated, almost sounds like it's not doing his performance justice, but he's pretty reserved in his his acting throughout the movie. And so when he finally just loses his shit uh, in the Tesseract, it's that much more impactful. No, you're right. I actually didn't even think about that during the course of the film, but it's a slow build for him. Yeah. Like he keeps it in check pretty well. Yeah, even when he's departing from his daughter early on. When I kind of, I think, was predisposed to imagine that he would just freak out in those yeah. things because that's the way maybe he'd done it. They would just splice in something from the Lincoln lawyer. Man, yeah. He's really in a like a beautiful period for his career. Well, it's very strange. He started out doing kind of the more uh, dramatic pieces. Uh, a Time to Kill comes to mind. Oh, yeah. Or um, it's just that he was, they need a handsome southerner. Uh, and then he kind of fell into the, uh, the Kate Hudson trap, which coincidentally might have been the title of one of those movies. I'm not sure. Yeah, but I think Sarah Jessica Parker actually performed in the movie, but the- Oh yeah, talk about failure to launch. Yeah, that's, uh, and then I think he did some throwaway action movies like, uh, uh, Sahara. Uh, and then one day he just woke up and he was like, all right, all right, all right, send me some scripts, make them a little different. Right. I don't, I don't know how it happened. He was always, I guess, pretty weird- I, don't, I think I listened to a podcast. Hey, we're doing a podcast right now. Yeah, we sure are. That's yeah, bring the, it. Everything comes around. I've oh. always said, too, the best podcasts are telling stories from other podcasts. <laughs> yeah. if well, you it's, wanna... more, it's more realistic. It's more like <laughs> yeah. my actual life. Uh, so you were listening to a, a podcast about McConaughey. Yeah, it's cool when he gets to talking about himself in the past. Or just, it's basically the same kind of voice where he's like, 
kind of all of his S's like are real sharp and just whistle where he's just like, Shh, I was sitting out in front of the washing going <laughs> Austin, Texas. And I'm telling you, man, yeah, my friend, my friend Richard Linklater came up to me, told me, I said, hey, I'm hungover right now. <laughs> you hungover too? Let's do a movie together, man. And shit, that's how I fell into, fell into acting. Do you think Matthew McConaughey was one of those guys who like wasn't that popular in high school and then just turned into a lady killer? Or do you think ninth grade Matthew McConaughey was like having sex with his friend's moms? No, sadly, I think Matthew McConaughey has just been just, just killing it Yeah, with the ladies since day one. Now you're, what are you, 33 years old? Yeah. So uh, if you could just toss 10 years of your life into a void, become 43-year-old Matthew McConaughey, would you do it? Yes. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't have even had to yeah, think about no that. I've been about fantasizing that. about that, actually. Are there going to be hard questions? <laughs> <laughs> it'll, it'll get progressively more intense, yeah. I mean, we could, actually, that would be interesting for me if you just toss out things that I would give away 10 years for. <laughs> it's a lot. There's uh, a real big danger yeah. with this podcast anyway, where I'm just going to turn this into a therapy session for me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, you are paying for the room that we're sitting in right now. So it's about a hundred bucks. That's true. Um, yeah. So uh, let's start with kind of what did you know going in? I mean, basically, you, you had heard of this movie and all you knew from me was that I liked it so much that I had this website, and I'm sure I've never been that committed to anything, so I'm sure that was a surprise. Actually, you've always been really... Oh, have I? Yeah, you've always been committed to the the cultural artifacts that you really prize, I think. <laughs> so and if you had to name a top three, what would those be, cultural um, artifacts? Throughout history? Yeah, I know one history. of them that I hope you say, but I'm not sure if you will. So well, I'll fill that in if I need to. Well, I mean, so I, Ghostbusters oh, as, sure. as a young child, yeah. Star Trek as a, I don't know, like pre-adolescent, yeah. late late pre-adolescent, I don't know what that refers to. That's about right, yeah. Yeah, and then after that, it's just been just any B-movie that touches <laughs> your fans. Anything starring Dennis Hopper, Michael yeah. Madsen, Christopher Lambert. Yeah, but you explore things that's in such detail and with such great passion that usually I, I've, I've come to the point where I know I'm going to be swayed by it. But, um, but anyway, so the, it, the reactions to Interstellar were pretty across the board for me. I had friends who thought it was really stupid and really over the top. Mm -hmm. And I had friends who were pretty passionate about it themselves and then i also had friends who were like yeah three quarters of the movie is incredible it's really great it like hits all the marks and then at the end it gets gets really like kind of schmaltzy and then it's not very good mm. um but that's a really great formula for me when it's just been destroyed by everyone yeah, else yeah. around me because then my ex expectations are really just reasonable going in yeah or it's just whatever the experience is i'm gonna you know it'll be something that i'll be focused on just on my own and I, I actually really enjoyed this film, and I am kind of an anxious person, so there was a point in the film where I was just like, oh man, it's, it's going to end someday. Yeah. And then I'll be sad. <laughs> yeah, no, I would have loved so, for it to go on forever, yeah. forever. Something I said on an earlier podcast, I've never been so consistently tense watching a movie. Yeah, it's paced out really well, I think. Mm -hmm. Actually, yeah, I'll, uh, you know... Not that this is something I can talk intelligently about, but I, I think the craft of the filmmaking and the story 
is really good in this movie. That was something I noticed early on too, where they kind of have that parallel structure between when he's taking off, which is a little bit in the future when they're shooting him, just kind of driving away oh, yeah. from his daughter. And I, I just thought that was just great craft in mm-hmm. that moment because usually, you know, you would see those on the platform as the shuttle's taking off. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Instead, they focused on the emotions of what the character is going through at that moment. Mm-hmm. And that stuff was, those were just kind of almost, not throwaway moments um, because they're building, but they were just so seamlessly woven into the way the story was told. What do you think was the most uh, kind of intense moment of the movie for you? Like those those scenes, those interpersonal scenes with the daughter were probably the most intense for me. Like in mm-hmm. terms of the tension of the action, I guess. Yeah, those those moments when they were docking was the problem where even if knowing that they would maybe get through it, it would still be some dramatic change in the expectations of the characters that you would then have to deal with. Right, right. I'm realizing now as I talk about this that my experience with film is based a lot on like just how anxious I am as a person. <laughs> am I, am I going to be able to handle it? When they don't have enough fuel to get back home. This friend of yours who kind of didn't care for the last quarter of our Academy. (laughs) Who you hate. Who uh, who I... uh, Without ever meeting. uh, He's slipping an address across the table to (laughs) me right now. Uh, Yeah, what was his... Was it essentially just he felt like it was maudlin or... I think in general he liked the the movie. Yeah, it's just maybe he was answering criticisms himself. He was like, "Yeah, I could see the last fourth being bad." I mean, that was that was really the case for me, as I'd be in groups of people talking about it, where someone, everyone would seem to feel the need to criticize it in some way. Mm. Which, thankfully, for I don't feel that compulsion because the fervor over the film in one way or another is kind of past, except for. With you, <laughs> this yeah. fervor is ongoing. Yeah. It's fermented. Yeah, yeah. where uh, you've actually re- referred to it as a religious experience uh, already, and <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I did. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not someone who spends a lot of time in church unless there's a raffle. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, this singles for me, night. yeah, <laughs> singles night. Yeah, no, I, I definitely appreciate the craft of this as a film, and I love dissecting that part of it. But really, I mean, the only thing that could make someone see a movie in the theater 29 times, as I did, is, yeah, that's, yep. Wait, are you being even... No, I, I swear on Interstellar, <laughs> I guess, that, oh, yeah, man. I saw Interstellar 29 times in the theater. You realize that's like a down payment on a house. I mean, I don't know. I'm not good. <laughs> the type math, of house but... that I want, it was out of my range down anyway. Down payment on a yurt. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, a- absolutely. I mean, that's the only thing that could drive someone to see it 29 times is if they're having a transcendent experience like that. And so for me, I really enjoyed watching the movie, but really the entire point of being there was the so that I could... Uh, have that experience of stepping outside of myself and connecting to something in the larger universe. I, I, I'm very much someone who gets lost in the day-to-day uh, travails. And so that was the one point where I felt like I was part of a larger organism, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, I'm just really learning a lot about you through this podcast, <laughs> but not, not yeah. in a bad way. It's just like, I get, I get it. That makes sense. I mean, that's, that's sort of what's aimed at in the, the science fiction that's explored in this film as a way to kind of unite these different prevailing theories, like a relativity and like quantum mechanics. That's what they're trying to do through the fiction of this film. Right. In a, in a coherent way. That's also something that I guess every individual can take part in. I definitely have that attitude about art in general, that that works in the same way as religion. I Mm -hmm. guess some sort of shared experience where you're given the opportunity to experience an emotion that's outside of yourself or bigger than yourself. Yeah, and and that's where we go back to uh, the craft again, because these are all thoughts we can have. So, for instance, I've always thought of love as something that transcended time and space. I have very specific thoughts about everything in the film, but no one has ever uh, made specific narrative and technical choices that brought it all together for me in that way. So for an artist to distill human experience into something you can consume, I think it is amazing. No, it is. It's a a real gift uh, when you get that from a work of art where you are enveloped by it and you're not seeking something outside of it it is it's just so pleasant and wonderful to have a world that you can like move around and it's full of philosophy and and science and all these different concepts that you get you get the opportunity to explore within a pleasant narrative structure also yeah and i think what you said there about kind of uh explore in a physical sense that actually is really what the Tesseract is, is it's exploring the uh, notions about love in a literal mm. physical place. And so it makes it very visceral and powerful. So let's stick on maybe the, the Tesseract for a bit, which is essentially the last quarter of the movie, I guess, is the Tesseract. Oh, okay. And uh, when he wakes up uh, outside of the black hole uh, or the wormhole, rather. That part is very uh, operatically sincere, extremely emotional. And so I've been in theaters with uh, hipster types where it was like, oh, man, love isn't even real anyway. I'm just here to get high. And, you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever. And, and nothing like angered me more than someone like uh, cackling at a really emotional moment. And so I feel like we've gotten to a point in society where we feel like anything that's genuine and not ironic or dark is not valuable or it's <laughs> silly or it's not genuinely art. Do you know what I mean? Right. No, I do. Yeah, where if you're if you're actually displaying some sort of genuine emotional experience without I don't know hedging in some way, mm-hmm. then you're not given you're you're thought of as being like foolish or foolhardy or, or naive or something. Yeah, like I picture. Um, I talked a little bit on the first episode uh, about how the experience of watching the movie actually evoked a lot of feelings about our grandfather, a very good man who we both loved very much. And uh, last year, we had uh, a nice memorial where we all shared really genuine, sincere thoughts about him, and it was really emotional. And I can picture some Brooklyn prick (laughs) with his scarf and, like, a vest he got at Goodwill that's, like, from 
a David Bowie clothes <laughs> collection that's not made anymore. Like just sitting there with arms crossed, like oh look at him. Um, and so that's kind of the feeling I get of, of people that are like, oh, the the last quarter of that movie is so stupid. <laughs> it just it just really upsets me because it's like, are do you have no soul whatsoever, <laughs> sir? I'm just so surprised that you even like me as a person. <laughs> <laughs> this you have really uh, strong yeah. feelings about like my fellow Brooklynites. <laughs> well, this entire website like, and and podcast were were developed as a vehicle for uh, <laughs> intervention hate, for you specifically. Yeah. I'm sorry to hit you with it in well, this manner, but no, I think uh, I think you know th- therapy and medication have enabled me to you know get back to feeling some vulnerability emotionally speaking, and maybe I'm just going to get away from yeah. some of that. Well, and we took a few, uh, we, you know, we popped a few Vicodin before this uh, broadcast. Yeah, thank you for that, by the way. I really appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. It's pretty easy to get in a small North Carolina community, strangely enough. There's so many farmers down here, there's a lot of back problems, and so there's just scripts being written left and right. Oh, that's true. But uh, speaking of script being written uh we were discussing <laughs> what do you want to talk about now? <laughs> we, we were discussing a little bit the uh, pacing of the movie so let, let's uh zero in on another aspect of the script which is dialogue i felt like they struck a really good balance between being realistic and letting themselves go into a little bit of profundity that wouldn't necessarily be how uh, folks speak in everyday life, but it's kind of interesting and representative of enough of their situation, and everything else is done with enough care and realism that you can sort of accept that. Yeah, I can't think of examples right now. There were a few times when something McConaughey said was just very well constructed. Yeah, I think a lot of maybe the scene where him and Donald, John Lithgow's character, are uh, drinking a beer. It's like we've forgotten who we are, Tom. Explorers, pioneers, not caretakers. When I was a kid, it felt like they made something new every day. Some gadget or idea. Like every day was Christmas. But six billion people. Just try to imagine that. And every last one of them trying to have it all. This world isn't so bad. And Tom will do just fine. You're the one who doesn't belong. Born 40 years too late or 40 years too early. My daughter knew it. God bless her. And your kids know it, especially Murph. Well, we used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. So so that, I think, has application even beyond the context of the film, which is just this idea we, we talked about the travails of daily life overwhelming our ability to think outside ourselves and perceive our larger cosmic significance. And mm. and so I think that's not just that future world, that's today's world. We used to be be pioneers and we used to have this sense of wonder and, and now there's 
just a sense. Perhaps it's just the proliferation of negative things uh, in the media today, but there's this real sense of uh, closed-mindedness mm-hmm. and that as global as the world is, it's very small. And uh, we just don't think outside of sound bites or small segments of our day. Yeah, definitely in the beginning, I was seized by this idea of the, the plot being kind of a parable for the times we live in now, because we have mm-hmm. all these ideas about like the, whether or not we should fund something like space research. Um, yeah, and that was actually something uh, Kip Thorne and Christopher Nolan talked about. Christopher Nolan described his experiencing 2001 A Space Odyssey, I think during a re-release in the 70s and, and how it inspired him. And so the genesis of Interstellar was Kip Thorne is a theoretical physicist, I believe at Cal State. And he Ooh. wanted to do a very realistic uh, science fiction film where all of the science was grounded in reality or in reasonable speculation. And so the story changed a great deal under the Nolans, but they always held fast to that basic tenet. And they a- anything they included in the film, they got approved by him as being scientifically plausible. Mm-hmm. And so part of his reason for wanting to do that was to inspire interest in things like space exploration and I think popular culture and film, especially because it's a visual medium, are a really incredible way to do that. And it's not just this sense of uh, thinking larger than ourselves and manifest destiny and conquering other worlds. There's a lot of very practical applications, like so many of our medical advances came uh, out of the space race. We had this conversation yesterday when Matt was here, where we were talking about Kind of toggling between socialism and capitalism. Um, this makes us sound like a really intelligent family, but I assure you, this is just. Yeah, it was a dinner so party. Um, someone was offended. It ended <laughs> up with a white glove smacking someone lightly on the cheek. It was <laughs> <Right>. pretty intense. <laughs> but the, but the conversation was about toggling between those two economic systems. And it strikes me that like something like space research is a really good example of how that works, which is ultimately the triumph of the whole over the individual. We would engage in something that would expand our consciousness, which is, I guess we all can kind of agree is a a good thing. If we can imagine a world outside of ourselves, we can all imagine that that would change things for us. If we could come in contact with something so vast and so large and so completely removed from what exists in our world right now, we can't even imagine how that would change it. So it requires significant resources to achieve it, but we dedicate those things like on this really vague notion that it will in some way change our lives if something happens. But occurs to me that that's even kind of explored in the context of the film because the world is kind of falling apart piece by piece as every crop dies, but there's still this secret NASA program going mm-hmm. on where they've kind of said, and there's, it's in the beginning of the film too, when he's in that parent teacher conference where they're like, listen, we don't fund <laughs> things like, right. like the space program anymore. Or we right. don't fund, we, you know, our, our taxes don't go to universities. Yeah. They're going to something, but we don't know what it is. It actually happens to be space research. <laughs> well, that's a fascinating cultural touchstone, too, is the fact that they've rewritten the history books to dissuade people from being interested in space exploration. Yeah. Can you talk about that? I, I still don't quite understand how that worked in the plot. Like, why was that necessary? Well, I think 
some of that comes back to when Cooper says, uh, we used to look up and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we worry about our place in the dirt. And in a sense, I think it was uh, an adjustment of children's expectations for life and the extent to which they dreamed about things greater than, than themselves. So as a child, there's a lot of things that interest you and because we live in a really stable society it's actually encouraged for us to pursue those things mm-hmm. but in a society where we either need everyone to grow food or we're going to die uh you sort of need to squash children's intellectual curiosity and drive them toward the thing that's towards necessary farming. for sustainability farming. towards farming specifically yeah I think uh, it's sort of interesting, this book, The Science of Interstellar by Kip Thorne, what's very interesting is he has a legend that he puts with these various concepts, and so it will say, um, proven science, theoretical science, totally speculative, and really the only thing that's totally speculative is the Tesseract. That's not something you can disprove, but it's certainly not something that we have a shred of scientific evidence for. Mm -hmm. What was your perception of what the Tesseract was and and what was happening uh, in there? Did you feel like you came away with an understanding uh, of what this was scientifically? Or was it just kind of like, let me just go along for this ride and accept what's happening because I'm connecting to the emotional (laughs) aspect of it? Yeah, I think it's probably closer to the latter. I think... It held together in some way in my mind that it was some kind of structure through which we're given to understand that time is this fluid, circular thing that you can kind of jump in and out of from different points via whatever interdimensional space was created inside of this black hole, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, but the since the mechanics of the black hole are completely lost on me, like, <laughs> right. I just gave myself a pass on that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, they they made it, they created a nice visual system for it where it was a bunch of interlocking pieces that made it easier to see the rooms as rooms inside of the tesseract. The tesseract was surprisingly, if you can believe it, a physical set. The room had been recreated on three levels, and so they supplemented it a little bit with uh, just repeating the room. But yeah, but as far as like when you saw a close up of McConaughey pressed against the bookshelf, that was all a physical set, which was fascinating to me. Yeah, those were also familiar visual sequences. That way of illustrating time as being relative or being fluid, I guess, more Mm -hmm. is familiar to me, like through even something like Groundhog Day, where it's just like this really slow, iterative process of, I don't know, making small changes over time is how I kind of understood that to work. Yeah, I have. I had uh, a very uh, specific view of time. I've never told the story on the podcast. I don't know if I've ever told you. I, ha- I had a kind of preternatural experience with time. So this was about 2010, I think. Uh, I was dating a lovely young woman at the time. She had come to stay for the weekend, and uh, she went to bed a lot earlier than me. She's someone that uh, needed that beauty sleep. You know how you can be, right? Um, <laughs> So I would often sit up in bed with my laptop doing some work or just surfing the web or whatever while she was asleep next to me. 
And so this was about two in the morning. I was up uh, working on a grant application, I think. <laughs> and uh, she sat up to go use the restroom. And she didn't get off the bed. She just sat there. And so at first, uh, I didn't say anything. I was just typing. And then after uh, probably about 10, well, no, maybe maybe 20 seconds, I said, uh, is is everything okay? What's going on? She didn't say anything. Another few seconds passed. And then I saw her walk into the room so that simultaneously for a couple instants in time, I saw her walking into the room and sitting on the bed. And then the her on the bed sort of just vanished into the ether, as it were. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about what that experience was. I was wide awake, so I know it wasn't a matter of a dreamlike state. But I've thought to myself, and Interstellar sort of uh, made me think about that experience in my life more fully. Is time uh, linear or is time in constant occurrence? And we tend to only perceive one variable of it at a time. Shit, Andy. <laughs> 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 what the fuck am I supposed to say? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, right, my point you're... being, I did them both at the same time. <laughs> it was the uh, best threesome ever. Uh, but... I, I really want to high five you right now. <laughs> if the mic is gonna freak out. <laughs> Later. Just to bring it back down to, the, I actually do have that thing. I guess everybody probably we can let's all agree to this, listeners out there, mm-hmm. that um since the movie The Matrix came out, <laughs> oh yeah, and I'm sort of being facetious here, but I think we we all kind of have these questions about like the the reality of our reality that we're living in, or if there are multiple entry points to it, and it, I guess these are the kind of systems that exist for us now to imagine what happens outside of our consciousness or once we passed on or something. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm also not a religious person. I I would say too, I do enough inexplicable things that I can believe someone else is pulling the strings. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You just do so many things that you're like, I don't even understand why I did that. Listen, man, I'm just living inside of a snow globe that every once in a while somebody shakes up and then, yeah, yeah, all of a sudden, yeah, some girl just disappears from my bedside, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. Now I can just watch TV. And well, theoretically, a snow globe is pretty small, so you should still be able to find her in there if you looked. Because there's usually only, like, a house and a yard. Here's the thing. So did you look behind the house? The snow globe is everything. Oh, 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 I, I see. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, th- I thought this was a Honey, I Shrunk Kids <laughs> situation you were uh-huh. discussing. Aloha, and thank you for listening to No Time for Caution. Folks, I've said it before, and I will say it again. I don't make one damn cent off of this podcast off of quantifiableconnection.com 
or off any of the shirts in my Redbubble shop. This ain't about that, it's about the love of the game. I do still want you to buy the shirts, though. I think they're pretty cool. Uh, I was about to suggest that you pick this up for Father's Day, but let's get real, people. I post this podcast so sporadically that there's no telling when this went up or when you're listening to it. So I had a little idea. Let's go through every holiday this year so you never run out of gift ideas for the special person in your life. January 1st, New Year's Day. Yeah, get the new year started off right. January 14th, Orthodox New Year. Uh, January 18th, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. January 18th, Idaho Human Rights Day. February 10th, Ash Wednesday. March 1st, Town Meeting Day in Vermont. Uh, You'd look pretty cool if you showed up to that in a tar shirt, wouldn't you? March 13th, Daylight Savings Time. Just think of the savings you're getting from me on Redbubble. May 30th, Jefferson Davis's birthday. Day. What the fuck? It looks like multiple states celebrate Jefferson Davis's birthday as a government holiday. Okay, people, um, under no circumstances do I want you to hand someone an interstellar t-shirt and say, Happy Jefferson Davis Day. Please don't do that, or if you're going to, just don't do it with my shirts. Jesus. Anyway... Thank you so much for listening. Hope you pick up a shirt. And if you're so inclined because you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave me a review on iTunes. I really appreciate it. All right, and we are back. It's about... 447 in North Carolina, so we are gonna drink a little whiskey here. <laughs> um, this is from the good people at uh, Boulet Bourbon <laughs> Bullet. Fr- Frontier Whiskey. Oh, I was giving you a little too much credit. I, I assumed it was French whiskey. Everyone knows <laughs> the French make the best yeah. hard liquor. I didn't realize that you had been sponsored. And that's so cool. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's in its nascent stages. Um, they've asked for my Google Analytics. I haven't I haven't furnished them uh, yet. I don't know what that means. But we're hoping to make this happen. So uh, we were talking a little bit about this idea of, of how we perceive reality and what the marriage is between what's right in front of us literally right in front of us and then sort of our larger significance in the cosmic picture because of how interconnected our society is now it seems possible to imagine that our individual acts will resonate and change the world that we're actually living in and how retweet yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's the butterfly effect, man. <laughs> um, yeah, like what you had for breakfast will affect. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, like, I think that does play out in our science fiction fantasies as well, and it, but it also seems to have some scientific backing too. That there's this ripple effect to our individual acts. I think that's right, and you can really observe this based on the fact that we all remember really specific things from childhood that 
other people don't remember, right? They didn't have significance to that individual, but they had significance to us. I, I even think about that if I go to, say, a Target or a Best Buy or any retail store, having worked retail in college, I think about the fact that how I treat this person could have a major impact on the rest of their day, and that'll affect their mood when they go home, and that'll affect how they interact with their girlfriend or wife or husband or boyfriend. And so I try to be very self-aware and conscious of what I'm putting out in the world. And with the proliferation of media, the fact that you can send out a tweet or throw up a video on YouTube, it has the ability to uh, affect the moods or whims or what have you of hundreds of thousands of people. No, yeah, it's true. I mean, there's that aspect of it, too, where everything is recorded and everything is preserved somehow, mm -hmm. either accidentally or on purpose, and that lends it some greater significance. But And it also gives you this opportunity for identification, I guess. Yeah. That there is, yeah, everyone has these individual lived moments that they recall from their childhood, but they're also pretty universal. Mm -hmm. Everyone seems to connect on the same experiences. Yeah, and I think in a sense... The Tesseract is a visual representation of what we all go through in our own minds, reliving previous moments and regrets. And while none of us, uh, I don't think, unless there's, you know, an episode of Ancient Aliens I don't know about, <laughs> have uh, actually experienced what Cooper experiences in the film, it, it's not that much different. I mean, I spend probably 20% of my day thinking about <laughs> things I did 5, 10, 15 years ago that I wish I hadn't done. No, yeah, it's true. And there is that whole aspect of it, too. If you're, if you don't recall it, did it even exist? Or if you're not experiencing it in some way? Um, yeah, I think largely whatever our aspirations are, whatever has happened to us and whatever we're doing that moment are in constant occurrence because they're happening in our minds. Effectively, they are all happening at the same time. Well, I think there's that part of the craft of the film that I'm really drawn to, which is the parallel structure that Christopher Nolan uses throughout the course of the film to illustrate action, but it also kind of seems to reference what's going on in the between the two places, that moment where time is relative. Earth right. and where Cooper is. Right, right. So there's that parallel where things are happening simultaneously, even though time has shifted between Earth and mm -hmm. deep outer space or whatever. But that kind of illustrates this whole concept that we, we've been discussing, which is just how individual acts have resonance. And it's just about the point of reference, I guess, for examining how those individual acts have affected things. You have this butterfly effect where the butterfly is just flapping through the vacuum of space and then everything is experienced on Earth 23 years later or whatever it is in the film. But yeah, that's that's something that I think was really just real clever in the filmmaking process that the way the way that in which he used that and it's brought back like really cleanly but it illustrates something like super complex and really fascinating that i think we are all connecting to now that it can even just be hard to act as an individual now because you consider the different ways in which it will be perceived or will change actually the world around you i think that's right and the the film 
even not not the content of the film, not the story of the film, but the film itself has had an effect on many people. Uh, I've created this website. I've created this podcast. <laughs> uh, I, I chat with uh, the good folks on Reddit about different aspects of the film. So Christopher Nolan and Matthew McConaughey and hundreds of people choosing to come together to, to make this film has had a, a profound impact on my life. All right, another episode of No Time for Caution is in the books. I want to thank my cousin Eric for joining me. I had a great time chatting about the film, and considering he had just finished the film and pre-gamed with whiskey when we recorded our podcast, I think he was shockingly cogent. Thanks also to you for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the show, you can visit www.quantifiableconnection.com. You can also pick up a t-shirt there. And if you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Any comments you may have for me are deeply appreciated. Until next time, please stay tuned as the end credit suite from Interstellar plays you out of the broadcast. Take care.
Um, okay, so... Did that chair just break? It, uh, it's like the left, the right side is, uh... Holy shit, no, it's breaking on you. It's literally breaking. Yeah. Wow. There we go. What a lemon. 